0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabaniss. Uh Let me introduce myself. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and one of my responsibilities is to uh, oversee the Sunday teaching. I don't do it all. Uh, Other guys do it as well, but this is one of my responsibilities, and so I just want to say welcome. It's great to have you here. You picked a great Sunday. I trust every Sunday is a good Sunday because the Lord's here, but uh, picked a great Sunday because today we are starting a new series on the book of Daniel. We're calling it Public Faith in a Private Faith World, and we'll see this idea of public faith come out throughout the book, but let me just, in the simplest of terms, describe public faith. Public faith means that as a Christian... We follow the Lord Jesus Christ among all people and in all places. That, that's really all it means. Wherever I am and with whomever I am interacting, I am a disciple there, not just on Sundays. So the Lord doesn't receive one-seventh of our life, but all of our lives. Uh, that's our goal, is to walk with him in all of life. And, I, and I we say in a private faith world because faith is very acceptable in our culture, and I'm I'm very thankful for a pluralistic culture, and very uh, thankful to live in the American experiment where people can hold their own personal uh, faith according to their conscience. I'm grateful for that. Uh, What I think we see often in our culture is it's okay to believe what you believe as long as you keep it to yourself and hidden. And uh, so what we're going to see in the book of Daniel is that there are appropriate places to walk out our faith, uh, primarily with our lives and our actions, and secondarily with our words uh, as appropriate um, to communicate a testimony and a gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we say public faith in a private faith world, what we're saying is that there is oftentimes a resistance to our walking with Jesus Christ. We are swimming upstream. If we're going to be really uh, faithful disciples in, in, uh, in our lives, uh, we're going to be swimming upstream at points. And so the book of Daniel really models so well what it looks like uh, for us to uh, walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him, confident in him uh, in whatever place we find ourselves. Now, Last week we announced that we have some books out there by uh, the cafe uh, that we'd love you to get a hold of. This is the book of Daniel, and it's a a journal where one page is scripture text and one page is blank. So some of you did your study this week in your homework, and especially at the conclusion, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the things you may have noticed in the text. Uh, Actually, I think I had somebody kind of cheer in the first section, like, oh, I got that observation in my work, you know, this week or whatever. So anyway, we'll we'll look at that, but you can take notes on the sermon or just personal notes or prayer requests, whatever you want to put in there. It's a great way. You can pick one up after service. It's a great way to track along with us. So, So we're going to cover the whole first chapter today, and I want to talk about the secret to faithful living because i think it's embedded in this text the secret to faithful living meaning living faithfully as a disciple of jesus christ so uh, i'm not going to read the whole chapter to start we're going to take it in chunks uh, because it's a, a fairly long chapter 21 verses so let's begin with verses 1 through 7 and let's listen for this is god's holy flawless word in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Abednego. Now, as we begin to look at this text, it's good just to have a little bit of a history. And I'm going to kind of talk about the history of what's going on here as we go. But when I say history, I mean the history of the sort of storyline of the Bible. Because it really sets up what's happening here. Uh, in the Bible, we found they find that God made a covenant. That is, he committed himself to a people, to a man, Abraham. And he said from Abraham, he would bring a people, a nation. He would give them a land and that's Israel. And so God commanded uh, a people to follow him. He covenanted with them and he made some agreements that there were stipulations to the covenant, that he would be faithful to them regardless, but they were to be faithful to him as well. And if they weren't faithful, there were consequences. So for instance, when they began to fall away from him, they were his people in his land and they were supposed to be an example to all the nations of what God is like. Uh, The God of the Old Testament, his name Yahweh, God of the New Testament as well, Yahweh. And uh, he wanted to demonstrate what he was like to all the nations. But sometimes the people of Israel compromised and they began to look like the nations, not distinct from them. And so he sent prophets. We've got a lot of books of prophets in the Old Testament because these were people who came and called Israel to repent and turn back to their God. Well, if they didn't repent, which frequently they didn't, they just sometimes killed the prophets. I don't like what you're saying. I'll kill you. So what happened was God would send an opposing army in to, uh, to put uh, you know, pressure upon Israel, ultimately to attack Israel, so that they would see their need for God and repent and cry out to him, which is what they would often do. So the book of Daniel begins with Jerusalem experiencing the beginning of the greatest discipline they ever experienced. They're experiencing the beginning of God calling them back to himself after they have repeatedly ignored him. And he does that by sending in this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, in 605 B.C. So this is 605 B.C., this event, this begins the event that's called the Babylonian exile, when God's people from Jerusalem are taken to Babylon, an enemy, pagan, anti-God nation. And we read in the first two verses here that what this guy, this king Nebuchadnezzar does from Babylon, is he besieges Jerusalem... Uh, verse 1, and then he uh, the, he takes the king, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, which was uh, his God. So what he's doing is he's taking the king, and he's taking some of the temple treasures, some of the vessels, valuable vessels, he puts them in his treasury, that were used in the worship of Of God. And these were things that God had ordained, God had prescribed, things that were ancient that were used in the worship of God. So this isn't like somebody breaking into a church building and ripping off their sound system. You know, oh wow, they just took something out of the temple. That's not what's going on here. This is the one true God where they are to worship Him and declare His glory to the nations. And the very instruments of their worship are confiscated and they are taken, and of all places, put in a pagan temple of a false god in Shinar, which is another name for Babylon, in Babylon. Now here's why that is such a big deal and sets the tone for the book of Daniel and the environment and the culture to which Daniel will be living out his life. The reason it's a big deal is because in the ancient Near East, the worldview of the people was that when a king defeated another king, that that meant that his gods had defeated the gods of the conquered nation. So what's going on here is is not just, you know, uh, a little theft down at the temple. What is going on here is Nebuchadnezzar is proclaiming, our gods are more powerful than Yahweh, the God of Israel. That, that our, God is, our gods are more powerful, so we're taking something from your house of worship. And so the book starts with Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon confident that they have won and Yahweh is defeated. Now, not only does he take valuable temporal treasures, but he takes something really even more valuable. He takes Jerusalem's future, promising future leaders. So he takes the king, but he also takes the next wave of up-and-coming, the farm system. He breaks into the farm system, so to speak, and he doesn't, even, doesn't just take their starting picture. He takes their best prospects, and he takes them off to Babylon. Ashpenaz took people, it says. Uh, verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, important This is about teenagers. If you're a teenager in the room, this applies to you. He is taking uh, likely teenagers uh, without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. So he takes the primo young people. Uh, these are the best looking, the strongest, the wisest, the most knowledgeable, and those who have stature among their peers. Why do I say stature? He says these have to be young people that could stand in the king's presence. That ultimately that's going to mean could serve the king. So these are individuals who by their gifts and by their, uh, sort of, uh, their upbringing, they are those who are already part of the royal family... Or if they're not part of a, if they're part of some kind of nobility. So these are people who, by their upbringing of noble birth, are set on a course to be leaders, to be political leaders in Israel. And a pagan king takes them away. So what this represents is their future is being carted off to Babylon. Now, the whole city isn't taken to Babylon. That comes later. There's two waves at least. Like in 597 B.C., there's a wave. They grab a guy named Ezekiel. We have a book by him. In 587, that's when they come in and they destroy the temple. They burn the city, destroy the walls, all that kind of stuff. That's really what we think of as the Babylonian captivity. And they cart off everybody except the poorest of the poor, and they transport them into exile. To live in Babylon. But this is the first wave. He starts with defeating their God, so he thinks, uh, taking their temple worship elements, uh, putting them in the house of his God, and taking their future leaders so that they don't have a future. Now, what does he do with them once he gets them there? That's really a big part of the book. He puts them into this rigorous training program. So for three years, he's going to take these young leaders these young teenagers, and he is, or they may be old teens, I don't know, but they're youths, he is going to uh, prepare them to serve in his court. He is going to immerse them in a forced assimilation program to try to make them Babylonian in their thinking, in their uh, worldview, and ultimately to use their considerable gifts to serve and lead in Babylon. Now, this is really difficult for us to imagine what this would be like. Now, we might be able to imagine what would it be like to be a young person, a gifted young person with a bright future, and to be taken to another nation, another land, where you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't eat the food, everything's different, and to, to the disorienting feeling, even the hopeless feeling, about, I miss my home, will I ever be back there? Uh, we can imagine what that could be like. But what is hard to imagine is what it's like to leave God's land, God's city, for a pagan city. We live in a pagan culture. We live in a secular culture. Uh, we, we live uh, in a pluralistic culture. They lived under a theocracy where God is their king. And everybody holds to the biblical law they're supposed to. Everybody worships the same God. God is present among his people. So they live in a theocracy where God is present and they're taken into a pagan nation where everything in the culture is opposed to their God. Everyone in the culture doesn't know their God, doesn't care about their God, and resists their God. So they are, they are being assimilated, they are being enculturated, we could say, into something that's totally foreign to them. We can imagine what it's like to live among people that don't believe in Jesus Christ. They have never lived among people that don't believe in God and worship the God they do. And they're taken to this foreign culture. And the enculturation program had four aspects to it. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar gives them, number one, a Babylonian education in verse 4, we see that at the end of verse 4, kind of 4b, we could say it's, it, they teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are Babylonians, another name. So they are given a Babylonian, a pagan education, not just a pagan education, but really a pagan indoctrination. And note, Daniel and his friends accept that. Now you say, of course they accept it what choice do they have? As we go through the book, we'll see they have plenty of choices. There are times where they stand up and say, if this costs me my life, so be it. I won't do that. But when it comes to learning the language and literature of the Chaldeans, and the literature of the Chaldeans would have largely been religious, um, at least in part, it um, it, it would have been idolatrous, uh, and it would have been their their history of their gods, the history of their religion, all this kind of stuff, which would have been things they uh, would not have believed, but they don 't resist that. In other words, they could have said, we are not we 'll do anything, but we 're not reading your stuff we don 't believe it and kill us if they 're going to do that later, but not about this. They accept a pagan Ill, uh, education or indoctrination attempted indoctrination they 're taught the literature they 're taught the language. And they master it because at the end, they have it down better than any of their contemporaries who've grown up in Babylon. They master the pagan material, but they are never mastered by it. There's a difference here. They are in the world, but not of the world. They are serving faithfully and are flourishing and are beating the pagans at their own game, but they are never giving their allegiance to false gods. This book is going to press us in some ways to see what does it mean to stand for the Lord in a culture opposed to him. When do we stand in opposition and when do we seek to flourish in the midst of it? Uh, So it's going to press us in a lot of ways. I'm going to today even leave you probably with more questions than I do answers, but that's good. It causes us to wrestle with the text. Number two, they're given a Babylonian service. Babylonian education, Babylonian service. They are being groomed to stand before the king, which is language they're being groomed to lead politically in a pagan nation. They accept this. Their immersive pagan programming is to prepare them for a role of service in foreign government. And they faithfully serve in exile, working in an ungodly culture, and yet they remain faithful. Again, they are in this culture, but they are not of this culture. Number three, they're given Babylonian identities, and they accept this. They are stripped of their Hebrew names, uh, but they do not refuse to be called by any other name. They don't say, that's the point at which I will be killed, uh, you know, whatever. They take new names, and they are stripped of names that are powerful and have wonderful meaning. In this culture, your name meant something. It wasn't like, well, it just goes well with the last name, so let's go with that. But your name was, was given to you to say something about your identity. So Daniel means God is my judge. That's an awesome name, and it also just will be communicated throughout the book. That's exactly how he lives. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Kind of ironic when you're captive in exile, but it's true. We'll see as we read the book. Mishael means who is what God is. Speaks of the u- unique nature of God. Azariah means the Lord is helper. But now they are referred to as Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we don't know, scholars don't know exactly what those names mean, but they're all tied to foreign deities in some way. So now you're going from God is my judge to something about this pagan god. And uh, they take those names, knowing that those are no real gods ultimately anyway. There's only one true god. So they accept Babylonian Education, they, they're willing to do Babylonian service. They're willing to uh, be called by Babylonian names to be viewed with a Babylonian identity. Next is Babylonian provision. It says uh, in verse 5, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. The king is their provider. He provides their food and drink from his table, and they don't accept this. At least not as he requires. And that leads us to our next verses. Verse 8 through 13. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And water to drink, so they're foregoing the meat and the wine. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now this is kind of surprising in one way. Because they take the pagan uh, education, they're not going to be mastered by it, but they master the material. So they're being exposed to something certainly very very opposed to God, uh, they take the pagan names, the, the identities, the names of the foreign gods as they are referred to, and they're even willing, this is a big one, they're even willing to serve in the service of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, but they won't eat a Babylonian steak or enjoy a fine Babylonian cabernet. They pass on that. And so what, why is that? That seems like a smaller thing. It sounds like just eat a little meat is smaller than serving the king's court. In terms of if you're going to go pagan, that really seems like the bigger one as opposed to eating. Well, he says, it says that Daniel did not want to defile himself. And there's various discussions about what this all means um, and I don't know that anybody ultimately has the answer. Let me just say this. I'll give you a few ideas, but let me just say this. Ultimately, what's happening is Daniel has a, a clash in his conscience, feeling like eating the rich meats and the, and the rich wine from the king's table, that for some reason is a compromise for him, and that he won't do. So some people say being defiled means, well, what's going on there is the food's not kosher. Maybe they're giving them pork or something like that, and he can't eat that. But the reality is he turns down the wine, and there's no reason under kosher law he couldn't drink the wine. So it doesn't seem like it's just that it's against the Jewish food laws because they deny the wine as well. Some people say, well, this must have been stuff offered to idols. And so he doesn't want to eat it, this idol meat and this idol drink. But a lot of scholars say, actually, probably all the food in this kind of environment was offered up, First to idols, not just the meat, uh, not just the wine, but probably everything was. I mean, talk about being unclean. They're eating in Babylon. I mean, this this is like you know, everything around them is unclean. This is eating off the floor of a truck store, uh, you, know, a tr- you know, like a bathroom at a, uh, uh, you know, at a, what am I trying to say? Truck stop. This is a truck stop bathroom floor that they're eating off of, uh, spiritually speaking. It's all unclean for them. So it's probably not that as well. Well, what is it? Most likely, eating the king's food communicates some level of dependence on him they're uncomfortable with. Some level of loyalty to him they're uncomfortable with. Some people say it could even be a covenant loyalty to eat the food from the king. His choice is food is to enter into some type of covenant or faithfulness or allegiance to him. But they're saying, no, I don't have allegiance to him. He will not provide. He's not my ultimate provider. God is my ultimate provider. God is the one who has my ultimate allegiance. So Daniel is willing to be in the culture, but he will not be of the culture. And for some reason, eating at the king's table crosses that line. So what does he do? Does he announce, I'm going on a hunger strike and let everybody like boldly, brashly know what he's doing? Uh, Does he go on a Facebook rant because the Babylonians are acting like Babylonians You know, uh, that's what we often do. Christians go on rants accusing people that aren't Christians for acting like non-Christians, which is kind of strange. That's kind of how they act and live. They don't believe the same Jesus that we do. But he doesn't do that. He instead wisely seeks to walk out his convictions in a way that worships the Lord but allows him to keep functioning in what he's doing. So he makes an appeal he makes an appeal. He doesn't just stop eating, but he asks, uh, you know, he, he asks, first of all, Ashpenaz if he'll agree to this. And Ashpenaz says, look, if you refuse the king's food, you're refusing the king. So that's probably what's going on here. If you refuse the king food, you're refusing the king. If I let you refuse the king, then it's off with my head. So I can't allow that. But he goes to the steward, and we don't know how this all worked, but ultimately the steward, the one who served him the food, uh, ultimately agrees because he says this, can I negotiate a test so there's no risk to you? This is very shrewd, very discerning. He's saying to someone, can I live out my faith But I want to live it out in a way, not that it comes down bad on you. I have an option here, so it's going to be fine for you but allows me to live out my faith. This is, this is much better than announcing a hunger strike. This is a shrewd way of walking out his faith. And sometimes public faith means this. It means not that we're hiding our faith, but that we look to walk out our faith without bringing damage to somebody else, which is what he's doing here. He says, okay, I want to depend on the Lord and not King Nebuchadnezzar. And so just bring us vegetables, just bring us water. And the test is this, after 10 days, look at us and see if you're worried that we're going to look scrawny, emaciated, weak, like we're not going to look as good as the other guys who are being groomed for service. And after 10 days, it says in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. So they were fatter, in flesh, something that uh, we're usually trying to avoid, but in this case, it was a good sign to be fatter in flesh because they, they are eating just vegetables and water and they're plumping up solid better than the other people eating the rich food. So, in 10 days, that's what happens. Uh, it's probably also worth noting the steward who let them do this. I don't know what happened to the extra food. This isn't in the text. and, I, and But, and, but I, I just kind of wonder, like, does he get four extra ribeyes every day and four bottles of wine? I mean, his family, his wife and kids have got to be loving what's going on down at the indoctrination center because he is profiting by these Hebrews who are passing on the good food, but it's got to go somewhere. So we don't, we don't know what happened to the steward. That's speculative and irrelevant okay so the chapter ends the chapter ends with the great reveal you ever watch a reality tv show and all this kind of stuff happens and then in the end we have the great reveal who wins what does the remodeled house look like which contestant uh you know gets gets the gal or the guy whatever it's the last scene In the chapter, and this is what we find out happens after three years. Verses 17 through 21. After three years of Babylonian cultural training and indoctrination. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had all understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he interviews them. He interviews them at at the end of the period of time. And what he finds out is that they're not just better than the other people who are in training. He looks at all his enchanters, all his magicians, all his wise people, um, you know, all his philosophers and uh, all this kind of stuff. Everybody in his culture. And he says, these guys are 10 times better than any of them. They've been faithful to God. And in their faithfulness, they are flourishing in a pagan environment. They know the pagan system better than the pagans do, yet they don't buy in, they don't own it, it doesn't own them. They are working the system and they are flourishing. They are able to do what God has called them to do even in darkness. They are able to learn and ultimately we'll see more and more how they are a light in darkness. The darkness, faithful to God and flourishing in a secular anti-God culture. Ten times better. And then we find out at the end that Daniel is there until the first year of King Cyrus. That is not a throwaway sentence. There's no throwaway sentences in the Bible. But that's not a throwaway. That verse really helps us get the picture of the entire chapter. Because what that verse tells us is there's coming a guy named Cyrus who will be king. He will be king in 70 years because he will be the one that will topple Babylon. The chapter opens with the idea that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar and his gods have beaten Israel and her god. That he is victorious, but we find out at the end of the chapter that he will be overturned. There's a lot of kings that will serve after him. And then Cyrus will come in, and he will be overturned. And at the end of it all, still standing, is Daniel. He makes it through it all. And when Cyrus comes to power, what he does is he sends all of the people in Jer- uh, back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, and then later to rebuild their city, their walls. And so he sends them all back. God is faithful to his people, and he empowers Daniel and his, and his compadres to be faithful to God as well. Daniel's probably in his 80s now. Uh, it's 70 years later, so he's probably in his 80s. And he is still serving God, though Nebuchadnezzar is long gone. God still rules over his people. These verses, this chapter tells us that God is sovereign and God is faithful and he empowered Daniel to be faithful. And so the secret to faithful living is really this, that we have a deep rooting in the faithfulness of God that we have a deep rooting in the sovereignty of God, that he rules over all. He is the hero of this chapter. He is the hero of the entire Bible. God is, for he is the one who is working behind the scenes. Now, those of you who had a notebook and went over it this week, a, a journal, and did your study in Daniel, did you notice what What God does in the chapter, and by that I mean what verbs are attached to God. It's always helpful in looking through a text to know what does God do. So we have the name, a name for God, and then we have some action. What does God do? Well, here's what we learn. In this chapter... The verb gave is used three times. At three junctures, maybe you circled that. Maybe you boxed that gave. Maybe you colored it in purple with exclamation points. I don't know how you journal and take notes in your Bible there. But this is what it tells us, that God gave Three different times. And when we look at this, we see our motivation for faithfulness that we remain faithful under pressure by understanding that God is in control because God is the one giving. We're going to look at these, but God is the one giving to his people in these various situations. So, two ideas for you as to how do we remain faithful under pressure. First of all, we believe that God is in control, not as a Sunday school or Bible study answer alone not as getting the right answer on a systematic theology test, I believe God is sovereign, but in our core being, in the DNA of our soul, at the root of our faith, believing God is in control regardless of what I see, regardless of what I feel, regardless of what I'm experiencing, God is in control. This is the foundation of faithful living. We must begin with the conviction that God rules, that God is faithful to his word, that God is good. God is in control. And it's implied in that last sentence that Babylon is gone. Cyrus is here. He's about to act for the people of God. And Daniel is still standing. So it's implied there. But it's very clear when we look at the three verbs, gave, that, that God's actions are described in a way that he is behind the scenes working. The invisible hand of God is working for his people in this whole situation. And that's true in your life as well. God gave. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So... Nebuchadnezzar's doing the happy dance. We defeated Yahweh and his people. And our God, our gods did this for us. One commentator said he could imagine Nebuchadnezzar dancing and singing. Uh, Praise Marduk from whom all blessings flow. Celebrating his God. Look what our God Marduk has done. But what we find out is God let you do that. God allowed his people to be taken captive. This is the work of God's loving discipline. Whenever we talk about God's faithfulness, we only talk usually about good things. How'd the job interview go? I got the job. God is faithful. No one ever says, How'd the job interview go? I did not get it. God is faithful. That's usually not what they say. We usually are like the athlete that just won the championship. Praise God for all that he has done. All praise be to God. But the loser's locker room, there is rarely great praise towards God who is faithful to us by bringing loss and destruction to us all to teach us that he is worthy and the championship is nothing compared to him. Nobody's ever said that, that I've heard. I mean, maybe somebody said it. So the, he is faithful to discipline his people To bring them back to him. That's what's happening. So what Daniel knows is that ultimately he knows that's what God is up to. God even gives the vessels to the pagans. God even gives his choice promising leaders to the pagans. And so Daniel can be faithful. Because here's the reality. If you know God has placed you in Babylon's court. You'll have much more confidence to serve him faithfully. There. It's much easier to serve in a dark environment when you know that's where God has placed me. That's my mission. That's my calling to bring him glory in this environment. So he serves. Verse 9. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave Daniel. Uh, an open door so that he could make the request to eat the diet that he chose to eat to honor the Lord and not show allegiance and dependence on Nebuchadnezzar. God is faithful. When God makes a way like this, when God has favor on us and opens a door, it is much easier to stand And to walk through that door when you know God is opening for you. So he sees what God is doing. God opened that door. God turned their heart. God allowed the steward to give him vegetables and water. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, they worked. They did their homework. I'm sure just for the little bit of I read, evidently the Babylonian language is very difficult. Way, way, way more characters than in the Hebrew alphabet. So they would have had to, you know, learn the language. We assume they worked hard. We assume they studied. We assumed they applied themselves. But at the end of the day, their mastery of the material and and certainly their ability to interpret dreams and visions as Daniel has, that was the work of God. It is God that has placed them there. It is God that is giving them favor. It is God that is prospering them for his purposes. They live in exile, but God is working through them in exile. And guess what? We live in exile too. That's the biblical picture We're not in heaven yet. We are in exile. We are in a place where uh, we are in a world that is not ruled by everyone who is a Christian. We don't live in a theocracy. We don't live in Jerusalem as they did. We live in a secular, a, a, a pagan environment. One could say in some ways pagan. But certainly in a pluralistic culture. And so we are in exile too. When do we get home? We get home, we return home when Christ returns. Our great longing for home is not the city of Jerusalem, is not the earthly temple, it's the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. So until Jesus returns, everybody lives in exile. And that's really helpful to understand because it causes us to, uh, to seek to be faithful amidst opposition and to expect opposition. To expect and to understand and seek to be faithful and trust the Lord for that. So they know God is ultimately in control. Each of these verses shows us God at work behind the scene. And because God is at work behind the scene, because God is in control, Daniel can take a stand here and he's going to take much greater stands later as we see. Here's the big idea. God's sovereignty provides footing for us to walk in confident faithfulness. He is walking with the Lord, confident in God's faithfulness, and he is walking faithfully. But the only way we take a step and walk faithfully is if we know we have our footing on God's sovereignty. That we're walking on the foundation of the truth that God is in control and he rules over all, even when we're in opposition Think about a kid, a little kid, two-year-old kid who can't swim, jumping off the side of the pool into his dad's arms. You know, dad says, come to me, come on, jump, I've got you. And the kid jumps and the kid gets uh, is caught and, and enjoys the experience of leaping out and being caught by dad. Why does the child jump? Well, the child jumps because the dad calls him and because he's confident, the dad holds him. And it's the same thing here. Daniel is called by God to serve in the king's service in Babylon, and he's certain that God's got him. So he can take a leap of faith, trusting the Lord, obeying the Lord even under opposition. So I said I'd give you two ideas. One is that we must be sure that God is in control. We must believe that doctrinally, but it also is not just an intellectual doctrine. It must seep into our emotions, our affections. It must seep into the core of our heart, our being. The second one is to walk in confident faithfulness. So once we know that God is sovereign, we can walk in confident faithfulness. If we know our future is not in Nebuchadnezzar's hands, which they're going to face that later. If we know it's not in Nebuchadnezzar's hands, their future, because it's going to look like it is. But we know our, ha- our lives are in God's hands. We are free and empowered to walk out our faith, even in a hostile culture. And it starts with being faithful in small Now, again, I don't feel like I uh, have a bulletproof case on why he defiles, uh, why he avoids the food. I haven't read any bulletproof arguments from scholars on that. I think everybody says, well, we're not exactly sure, but it's probably not this, it's probably that. But whatever the reason is, he has chosen... To avoid the food because he believes that means to be faithful to God is to avoid this food. That it's a compromise to eat the food, drink the wine. And so he is seeking to be faithful to his God. That's a small thing. What's going to happen as we go through the book is it gets bigger than steaks and wine. It's going to be, chapter 3, a fiery furnace. Chapter 6, a den of lions. Bowing down before a statue refusing to pray to God. There's coming big challenges in the book, big challenges with significant consequences. But we notice at the beginning, it's sort of this small behind the scenes thing that Daniel takes his stand. It's when we take a stand in our conscience, even for the little things that builds our faith. So when a much greater challenge comes, God's already demonstrated himself faithful, and we trust and can make a costly stand. So let me ask you this. What, in what little things are you tempted to compromise? What are the little things today that you're tempted to compromise, maybe in your job? Well, it's not the big deal. I, I don't feel good about it, but I just go along with it. Listen, if you do that, there may come a day when there's a much bigger challenge, a much costlier decision that you'll have to make. But it's these little moments when we're confident that God is faithful. It's in these little moments we're confident God's faithful and we take a step trusting Him in what He's calling us to do that prepares us for bigger challenges down the road. Where's God calling you to rely on Him instead of Nebuchadnezzar? I don't know what that looks like for you, but in what way are you saying, you know what? I'm just going to pass on that? I'm just going to pass on that because I feel like that will be a temptation for me to trust something or someone other than God. Where is that in your life? Where where is, what would it look like for you to take a pass on choice meets and trust God? I'm not talking about literally, probably not literally for you, but what would that look like? One of the things I love about Daniel and the example here is that Daniel is subversive That is, he functions even under the surface in a way where he says, I have an allegiance to the God over all gods. And I, because of that, I embrace certain values that are caused me to act against the system. Here it's not disruptive, like crazy disruptive, like the food strike might have been. But here it is a winsome subversiveness. He even presents it in a legitimate way. Hey, I don't want to get you in trouble. So can we just do a test? A winsome subversiveness. As pastors, we're reading a book on pastoral ministry, and I don't think any of us were prepared for this one section where the author says a primary calling of a pastor is to be subversive. I mean, I had to look that up. It's like, what, is that like a spy in Russia? I don't even know what a subversive is. What does that mean? But what it means is that we are to, we are to live as leaders and we are to equip the church to live in ways that are countercultural that represent the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of the enemy. And sometimes we win that war and we execute that war and we fight that war, sometimes in subtle ways like this. In other times, it's not subtle. Everybody's bowing down to a statue and the friends are just standing there. We're not bowing. We'll get to that. But but sometimes it's just these subtle ways where we say, am I acting subversively? Can I point to areas of my life where I say, following Jesus means I'm not following the world. Following Jesus means there's certain costly things that put me at odds with the kingdom of darkness. Following Jesus, I can demonstrate some ways that I am under a different king. That's what Daniel's doing. I'm under a different king. I'm serving Nebuchadnezzar. I will be in his kingdom court but he's not my greatest allegiance i serve under the state i don't serve the state i serve the god over the state but i function in the state and see that applies to all of us let me give you a really small one Uh, we had an offering this morning some of us gave some of us gave online some of us gave once a month i mean maybe you didn't give today that's um, that's not the point but when you give money That is subversive. That says, the kingdom of this world says, use all your money for these things. And it just so happens that all these things are me. But use all your money there. The kingdom of God says, God owns everything and entrusts us things that we may use them for his glory. And so we we give to bless others or to fund kingdom activities, direct kingdom activities of bringing the gospel. So that's subversive. Um you know, if you're a student, here's a subversive thing. Getting out of your clique and going and reaching out to a marginalized person that others have resisted and rejected. Stepping out of the safety zone of everybody here loves me, likes me, and I'm going to step out and what? What are you doing? Cause confusion. It doesn't make any sense. Reaching out and including someone that others aren't included. That's subversive. Jesus moves to the marginalized. You read the New Testament, Jesus moves to the outsider. And when you do that, you are living a subversive value in the kingdom. You're saying, I'm not, my life's not dominated by the kingdom of this world who likes me. What do I get out of it? My my life is governed by the kingdom, which says I move to those who are suffering. I move to those who need a friend. I move to those in need of the love of God to them. And when you do that, You are assaulting the kingdom of darkness with the values of the kingdom of God. You're saying who your real God is in those moments, Jesus. I read someone who wrote about this, and at first I thought his illustration was not very sound exegetically, but the more I've read of it, I thought, yeah, I I think it's good. I read about a guy, a pastor who was uh, using an example, I don't know if he told the guy in his church this or not, but he was using it as an example, someone who's had a job that dominated his life. It was required and expected culturally that everybody put in crazy hours, 60 hours, 80 hours, whatever. You had no room for anything else in your life. The job was everything. He liked his job. It was with his gifts. It paid him well. It was a good spot, but he could not continue to make his whole life his job because there were other values that were hindered by that, namely his wife and kids, his participation in his church, numbers of things that were valuable callings in his life. And so the the, the pastor or whatever in the book was saying, hey, this is an example. This is an example of how you can reprioritize. Uh, but do it in a winsome way that brings value to your company and your boss. So he basically went to his boss and said, I know we have a no working at home policy. I mean, everybody's got to work at the office. You can't work at the home. So could I make a proposal? Would you let me work at home for 30 days? And if my production doesn't main this, m- remain the same, or actually, if it doesn't increase, whatever their metrics of increase were, increase were, if my production doesn't increase, we'll, we'll say it was just a, it was just a study and I'll be right back in. And that will be that. But that, and ultimately the story goes, of course, had a happy ending. His production was much better. They loved him. And in that instance, he was allowed to not eat the meat and the wine. He was able to maintain his allegiance to his Lord, be home for dinner, and engage with his other responsibilities. But do you see that? It's saying, I have a higher God, and I want to answer to him. I serve another king. So where are we in the system acting against its values? Where is that for you? Where's God calling you to walk out your faith in a public way, at work, at school, in your family? Know that your confidence must be based on God at work. Your future is in his hands and he is faithful. I love what Ian Dugan wrote about this chapter. He says, If the Lord could keep these young men faithful to him in their situation, then he's surely able to keep us faithful to him in our, much less, in, in our situation with much lesser trials and difficulties. God's faithful to us. Now, here's the reality. The reason I didn't call this series Dare to Be a Daniel is because the purpose of the series is not to be Daniel. Uh, actually mirrored against Daniel, who's a type of Christ in some ways, a representative there. Uh, In some ways, we look at Daniel and go, wow, that's not me at all. You're telling me i got to be like that? He's going to come into some martyrdom type of environments. I've got to do that? We all compromise. I compromise. I don't stand like I should in certain situations. And so really the good news when we read a section like this out of Daniel, the good news is that even though we fail to execute a public faith, faithfully in all situations, walking with the Lord without compromise, without fear when we're resisted. Even though we fail, there is one who never failed. And his name is not Daniel. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came willingly into exile. John one fourteen says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It means that Jesus came... Leaving heaven, the glory and perfection of heaven, to a world filled with idolatry and sin and brokenness. That's our world. Among sinners who weren't worshiping him, that's us. And he lived faithfully. And he not only lived faithfully, always representing his father perfectly. He not only did that, but for all of our unfaithfulness, he went to the cross and took that upon himself. He died in our place as our substitute, was buried, raised the third day, defeated sin, defeated death, and ultimately ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so our picture is we live in exile, and home for us is not the city of Jerusalem. It's not a physical temple. Home for us is a new heavens and a new earth, which he will return to implement, to execute, to bring to us, and to welcome us into. So Jesus went into exile for us. Jesus suffered in exile exile for us Jesus defeated the kingdom of darkness the kingdom of exile and is now ushering in the kingdom of God and will one day return and bring that in all of its fullness so today when you read the story of Daniel if don't find yourself discouraged if God convicted you confess your sin and repent may we all do that but ultimately let's look to the one who is greater than Daniel the one who is Lord over all, who is faithful in all things, who is faithful to walk out what we never could walk out, to die for our sins, to be raised for us in victory. And he is with us today, and he is in control of all things. Therefore, because we know he is in control, that is our footing. We can take steps of confident faithfulness to him today. Let's pray.